I thought, um, as I do every week, do a little bit of recap so we can see the continuity of what we are doing. We talked about certain deceptions, and I prefer to use the word deception because there is a, a little bit of twist to deception rather than cheating or lying or whatever. They look so straightforward. But deception has a, a bit of mystery to it. And many times that is truly what we do to ourselves as well. And we look at uh, the three kinds of deception sometime, but not today. The first deception, as I have said, was the denial of the uh, doctrine of divine judgment. The second deception we looked at was denying the sovereignty of God and desiring something they already had. The third deception we looked at was a false hope that the knowledge of good and evil is the same as having the ability and the will to reject evil and choose only good. Last week we looked at three reasons or motivations for doing what we do. The first one was necessity. It is necessitated and out of necessity it is determined. Then we looked at contingency. What I do now is necessitated by prior events and we call these mitigating factors. They are determined. But I introduced a third concept to it and that was self-gratification. And as I said, uh, you will not find the third point in any of the theories of justification uh, of intent, but I feel that that fits in pretty well. To me, this is essential to the understanding of human behavior, both the theists and atheists. In reality, self-gratification is based on the theory of contingency. It is an abuse of the goodness of God. We also said that there is no shortcut to discipleship. And uh, what we found was if we take shortcut, like the people of Israel in wilderness, we will end up empty and lean instead of being full and satisfied. To a greater extent, this is what we probably will look at or what we might end up looking at today. The whole thing about taking shortcuts and ending up empty and lean. The fourth deception is we can enjoy God's goodness without having a relationship with God. And that we know is not possible. We said that the first humans lost everything for what they already had. They thought there were more to gain when there was nothing more to gain. They pushed the boundaries of their relationship with God only to discover that there was nothing beyond the boundaries except the deep chasm that separated them from God. In their earnestness to gain what they did not need, they lost everything they already had. So this is what we basically have been looking at. In a kind of conclusion last week, I said that this is the delusion that masquerades itself as enlightenment. But instead of illuminating, it just provides the illusion 
of a better life and glorious future. This was the deception of the tempter in the garden and this is the deception of the present modern enlightened human. Last week we concluded by saying that for the first humans what was good and pleasing was the only thing that they did not need because they already had it. They did not need to eat the fruit of the forbidden tree to have what was good and pleasing. Life eternal is already theirs, but they took a shortcut. They wanted eternal life now. They wanted to hold the sunbeam in their hands. They wanted to hold the rainbow in their palms. They wanted eternity now. This is the shortcut. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had taken them. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. I am not sure, I said last week, I am not sure whether you can see the irony of what had happened here. In the wilderness, when Jesus was tempted, he repudiated the temptation, resisted the temptation of the devil, and the angels came and ministered to him. We looked at this as we finished last week. In the garden, the first human surrendered to the tempter, and God appointed angels to keep them out of the garden. I was trying to highlight the contrast of Jesus resisting the temptation and the angels coming to his aid, and here the first humans giving into the temptation and being chased out or kept out by the angels. Imagine, if you can, with me. If only they had resisted the tempter, the same angels would have been their servants. They lost what they already had because they wanted something they did not need. I kept saying this, but I am actually saying this to myself because I realize this is the tragedy in many ways of my own life. This is the true meaning of the paradise lost. There are apparently three aspects to human death in Scripture. I like to mention this in passing. We are not going to look at it in any detail. There are three aspects to human death in Scripture. First, uh, there is the spiritual death, which is alienation from God. Second, there is a physical death, which is separation of the soul from the body. Here, earth returns to earth and life returns to the original source of life, where we will be required to give an account for the life lived. Whether it be an hour of life or a hundred years of life. The third aspect is the second death. So there is a spiritual death, there is a physical death, and then the Bible talks of the second death, as in Revelation 20.14, which occurs at the end of the age. With this, the creation is restored to its original state, the state before the first offense in the garden. Once again, the dwelling place of God will be with humans. 
The consequence of the first offense was not hard work, but separation from God, living within the reality of time and space. God banished them from the incorruptible garden to the earth subject to death and decay. Today I want to look in some detail the fifth deception. The fifth deception is the idea that evil can be covered up if it is given a new name. Let me say that again. The fifth deception is the idea that evil can be covered up if it is given a new name. And that new name we give is sacrifice. I'm sorry, I'm, I know it will be confusing to a lot of you, but I might be able to explain it. The nakedness of evil cannot be covered up even by the most noble act of sacrifice. There is no sacrifice that can cover up the sin or the offense, rebellion against God. No sacrifice can cover up sin. It can only expose sin. So I'm not debating sacrifice. I'm saying sacrifice is not a substitution for evil. Sacrifice only exposes sin. In the Old Testament, all those who participated in the ritual of sacrifice were acknowledging or exposing their sin. When you went up to the priest in the temple with an animal or whatever, you were actually saying that I have offended God. I have sinned. So it was an exposure of sin rather than a covering up of the sin they have committed. There is no thought of concealment here. They sacrificed according to the gravity of their sin. The smaller sins only deserve small sacrifices and the greater sins a greater sacrifice. And of course, there was no sacrifice that covered the sin of taking a person's life. It's very strange that there is no sacrifice provided for killing a person in the Old Testament. The ultimate offering of Jesus on the cross was also not a compensation for sin, but it was the ultimate revelation of sin. It just showed the extensive nature of sin and the cost of sin. The death of Christ on the cross reveals the true nature of evil. It also reveals the love of the Father. In other words, it is the meeting place of God's wrath and mercy. The Bible is a record of human rebellion against God, motivated by rivalry. I hope to look at it sometime, how this rivalry works in human lives, because a good understanding of it is great. The Bible is a record of human rebellion against God, motivated by rivalry. This rivalry originates in the desiring of the desire of another. That's what rivalry is, desiring the desire of another. And I kept talking about God's Must Be Crazy movie, but I will surely come to it one day. I just get sidetracked as I'm reading. We see this in the garden. We see this in the first murder. We see this in the story of the Tower of Babel. We see this in the case of Jacob and Esau. Joseph and his brothers, David and Goliath, and every other story. These are all stories of rivalry. You know, Joseph was 
almost murdered by his brothers because of that. And of course, Cain murdered his brother because of rivalry. And we know the story of Esau and Jacob and others. Fortunately, in all these stories, the Bible does not cover up the evil, but exposes it for what it is, truly. The Old Testament rituals were God's provision for this exposure of the evil, of rivalry against God. But human beings turned it into fig leaves for covering their shame and nakedness. Sacrifice does not save. Salvation is a free gift from God. Later on, I'm going to be sacrilegious, but I didn't want to be sacrilegious right at the beginning. Apparently, there are three ways to deceive. Deception by commission, that is doing something, is actively misleading a person with false information or action. We call this blatant lie. I don't think we need any more examples to illustrate this point. This is deception by commission, committing something. The second is deception by omission. That is when we actively do not correct a misconception because not correcting it is to our advantage. For example, a person says to you, I have heard that your church is growing rather rapidly. And I respond, well, that is interesting. You see, I didn't say anything, did I? Did I say anything wrong? No. All I said was, well, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, of course, I like this person to think that my church is growing rapidly, but it is not. So I'm not going to correct him. I'm not going to correct him by giving the right information. Neither am I affirming him by giving any false information. The third is paltering. Paltering is using truths, truthful facts to deceive. Uh, Paltering is spelled P-A-L-T-E-R-I-N-G, paltering. Using truthful facts to deceive. The devious art of lying by telling the truth. This is how BBC describes this. The devious art of lying by telling the truth. How do you like that one? That's what is called paltering. So you tell the truth, but actually you are lying. How does it work? I have created an example. You may have a better one. Mom asks daughter, did you brush your teeth? Daughter answers, I have even cleaned the toothbrush, mom. But she didn't answer the question. Did she brush the teeth? Don't know. So again, mom asks the daughter, did you brush your teeth? And the daughter answers, I have cleaned the toothbrush, mom. Does it mean that she has brushed the teeth or not? It is left to the mum to make that conclusion. If mum makes the wrong conclusion, well, it is her fault. I didn't tell you that I brushed my teeth. You made that conclusion. Paltering is the most common form of deception. Business executives and politicians believe that paltering is more ethical than saying outright lies. So, apparently, 65% of business executives use this because it is better than lying. Politicians, 95% use it. Business executives and politicians believe that paltering is more ethical than saying outright lies. If you were to use our previous example, I have heard that your church is growing rather rapidly, and I answer, well, we had 350 people at our last service, The answer is true. 
because um, there were only 100 a few weeks ago, and last week we had 350. That's, that's fantastic. But I did not say that it was a wedding of a church member and not the regular service. You see? So 350 people were there, but they were not there for the regular service. So did I lie? No. But did I tell the truth? Well, I did say the truth, but was it the truth? The deception that the tempter uses the most is the last kind, faltering. We see this in the Garden of Eden, and we saw this in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. The tempter did not actually say anything false in either situation. This is very important to understand. The tempter did not say anything that was false in either situation. He told Adam and Eve, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And he told Jesus, angels will take care of you. We looked at this last week. So don't worry about it. Angels will take care of you. It was all true. What was untrue was they were not the whole truth. The tempter offered something they already had or did not need. The tempter may be tempting, but the aftertaste is terrible and leaves behind miserable consequences. Let us consider a few of these consequences. The tempter can be very tempting. That's what they do. But the consequences are sometimes disastrous. The first humans began to suffer the consequences of their rebellion almost instantly. Even before God appeared on the scene in the garden, they knew they felt shame. This is something very important to understand. Long before God came to the garden, the Bible says in the cool of the evening, God appeared in the garden. But long before that, they knew they were ashamed. They felt shame. The nakedness, guilt, and shame they felt was the natural consequence of their offense, not God's punishment. God did not make them feel guilty, and God did not shame them. I hope we understand this, and we must stand boldly to declare this, especially when the world says that Christianity is a shaming religion. God did not make them feel guilty. God did not make them feel guilty and God did not shame them. So the modern idea that God of the Bible is a shaming, guilt-inducing God is a fallacy. The tempter promised and their eyes were opened. But the tempter did not tell them what they would see when their eyes were opened. This is the third kind of deception called paltering. He said your eyes will be opened, but he did not say what they will see when their eyes were opened. The tempter did not tell them what they would see when their eyes were opened. This is the deception of paltering. Instead of the glorious vision and euphoric experience they hoped for, they saw their wretchedness, their shame. They saw the ugliness of the consequences of rebellion. They saw death. Once again, let me reiterate, the tempter promised nothing more than what they already had. But he made it sound like it was going to be a new and exciting experience. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. 
just as the tempter said. They realized they were naked, says the scripture portion. So they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. Now, while all this was going on, God was not in the garden. God did not cause it. God did not make it happen. He was out of the picture. So what do we learn? With or without God, we cannot sin in peace. We suffer its consequences. With or without God, we cannot sin in peace. We suffer its consequences. The second point I like to make here is that rebellion resulting from rivalry cannot be covered up. Rebellion resulting from rivalry cannot be covered up. Even after they covered up their nakedness with fig leaves, they felt ashamed and naked. I don't know if you understand what I'm talking about. They felt naked as soon as they ate the fruit. So they sewed up fig leaves and covered themselves. But then listen to what they say to God when he comes to visit them. He said, where are you? He said, we are hiding. Why are you hiding? Because we are naked. And we are ashamed. So this is rather interesting. Even after they covered up their nakedness with fig leaves, they felt ashamed and naked. Adam and Eve tried to cover up their nakedness with leaves. Where did this feeling of nakedness come from? What were they covering up? What they were actually covering up was the reason for their offending. In other words, they did not want to accept that they have offended. They said, we are ashamed because we are naked. They did not say, we broke your rules. You see, it's very interesting. There is no acknowledgement of their offense here. There is no acknowledgement of their rebellion. They said, we are hiding because we are guilty. Can you see the modern psychology here? It's amazing. You know, I, am, I have done this because I felt guilt or I felt shamed. And, of course, then you can say God is the one who shames everyone. Christianity is a shaming religion. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed up fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. He was not afraid because he rebelled against God. We must get that. We must get that. He was not afraid because he disobeyed God. The guilt did not come from that. The shame did not come from that. It came from somewhere else. It came from what they saw when their eyes were opened. And if you ask me, what did they see? I don't know. I think they must have seen corruption, destruction, the work of the devil, what they saw. But the Lord called out to the man, where are you? He answered, verse 10, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So the acknowledgement of sin doesn't come into the picture. It says, I was naked. And so I hid. 
They said they were hiding because they were naked, not because they have disobeyed God. I think sometimes it is a good thing to re-examine our confessions before God. I wonder if it involves certain paltering, where we say the truth, but we are not really saying the truth. How easy it is to confess and yet not confess. How easy it is to think that we are coming clean, but not coming clean. How easy it is to behave like Ananias and Sapphira, who said they were giving the whole amount, the whole proceeds from the sale of their property, when actually they were not giving the whole. And that is the temptation. The third point I like to make from here, about the paltering business, is where the first humans given a chance to repent and be restored is a question we need to ask. Where the first humans given a chance to repent and be restored. The offense we read about in the garden was of a unique kind in that it was different from all other offenses. It is different from what Cain did to his brother. Therefore, their repentance would not have resulted in their return to status quo. The act of rebellion has created a situation that cannot be reversed. The tempter said, your eyes will be opened. But what happened was they lost something forever. The act of rebellion created a situation that cannot be reversed. So the answer to that question, that is, where they're given a chance to repent, is... Yes, they could repent, but they could not be restored to their previous status because of the consequences of their offense. Now, we must realize that there are sins and sins. Certain sins, we must bear the consequences thereof. No matter how much we repent, we cannot restore things. What is broken may remain broken. So repentance is not always the antidote to rebellion. Repentance does not restore everything back to normal, especially as it happened in the garden. The fourth thing that I would like to say is evil cannot remain hidden forever. God hears the voice of Abel from his grave. Cain killed his brother and covered him up. Covered him up? with earth. Adam and Eve rebelled against God and covered themselves up. God said to Cain, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. We are not told what it was that Abel's blood was saying to God, crying out to God. God doesn't say what exactly this blood said. Unfortunately, many think that he was crying out for revenge, and God cursed Cain in response. But there is no such notion here or elsewhere in the Bible. Abel's blood did not cry out for revenge. I looked it up, and I found there is one translation of Hebrews chapter 12, 24, which Christians have profoundly used without even bothering to fact-check. This is, what is the third deception? Paltering. 
We must be very careful. It is not there. It is not there in King James Version. It is not there in RSV. It is not there in uh, New English Translation. It is not even in Philip's Translation. That's my translation. Some see in Hebrews 12.24 a vengeance theme, but there is not such a theme there. I want to tell you, it does not talk about, there is no vengeance mentioned at all, except in one obscure translation. Hebrews 12.24 To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's all. There is no mention of vengeance. The idea that Abel's blood was crying out for revenge is far from the truth and does not make sense in this context. Cain is punished for his disobedience. God had warned him, but he chose to disregard God's warnings. The voice of the dying Abel, silenced by injustice and hatred, was finally heard through another murder. And that is where he hear what Abel's blood was crying out to God. The Son of God on the cross was given the freedom to cry out to God in the hearing of the whole world. And that was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe this is what Abel's blood sprinkled from under the ground was saying to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is the cry of every one who has been unjustly treated in this world. They ultimately cry out to God, not asking for revenge, but asking for understanding. And this is the entire training of Transform for Life. We listen to understand. People are screaming, crying out, calling out to be understood. It was not a new voice. Every victim in every age had felt these feelings of abandonment. They may even have cried out in desperation. In fact, Jesus was quoting the words of another victim from the past. But what is different here is the cross of Jesus for the first time in human history proclaimed the innocence of the victim and the guilt of the victimizers. He spoke on behalf of all those victims who were silenced and all those who would be silenced. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for building the tombs of the prophets who were murdered earlier. Luke eleven forty seven to 48 we read, They kill them, and you build their tombs. Glorifying the murdered prophets will not make the murder any less evil. This is what Jesus was saying. Glorifying the tombs. Glorifying the prophets by building them tombs will not make their murder any glorious. God cannot forgive sin without compensation of covering is a fallacy and deception. The idea that God cannot forgive sin without compensation and covering is a fallacy and deception. God gave them garments of skin. Many scholars see here the first animal sacrifice for the redemption of the fallen human beings. This is not a sacrificial act. There was no sacrifice in the Garden of Eden performed by God. There is no hidden sacrifice or ritual here. 
God did not offer a sacrifice to himself on behalf of humans. God does not require a sacrifice to redeem the lost humanity. The provision of the animal skin was nothing more than as if God was saying, these leaves you are wearing won't last long, but this animal skin will last a little longer. I will give you something better. The fig leaves and the animal skin will cover up their shame, but they cannot cover up their sin of rebellion. God is not reconciled with humans, but God reconciles humans. I think we need to understand that difference. Shall I say that again? God is not reconciled with humans, but God reconciles humans. He is the initiator. And if he is the initiator, he doesn't have to do an act to appease himself. This is what I'm saying. God is not reconciled with humans, but God reconciles humans is the biblical doctrine of reconciliation. Adam and Eve wore fig leaves to make themselves acceptable to God, but they were still alienated from God. They had to hide. Their shame remained in spite of the fig leaves. The prophet Isaiah had something to say about it. He said, all your righteousness is like filthy rags. There is nothing we can do that would make us acceptable to God. Reconciliation through forgiveness is a free gift of God. There is no need for any sacrifice. And I underline the word any. Sacrifices do not redeem. They are only an indication of one's repentance. It is not a sign of redemption. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross was neither a fig leaf nor an animal skin. It was not a cover-up for sin, but an exposure of the true evil of human rebellion. Jesus' death was not a sacrifice, but a manifestation of God's love for us. I hope you will think about it. Jesus' death on the cross was not a sacrifice. It was a manifestation of God's love for us. I hope to talk about it some other time in detail. The death of Christ is significant in that it tells us how much God was prepared to give up, demonstrating his love for his creation and restore them to himself. John, one of Jesus' disciples, describes it as follows. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The Christian doctrine of redemption is different from every other redemptive story. The emphasis in the gospel narratives is on the one who sacrifices his life, his position, power and glory, rather than the act of sacrifice. I think if we can understand that, you will know what I'm talking about. The emphasis is not the act of sacrifice, but the one who sacrifices. The significance of the one who sacrifices. The focus is on the character of the Redeemer, rather than the mechanics of redemption. Don't spend too much time thinking about the cross. Think of the one who died on the cross. 
This is what I'm saying. Who was the one who was nailed to the cross is the is should be our motivation rather than the cross itself. Thousands of people were crucified on the Roman crosses. But why is this one cross so significant? It is because of the person who was nailed to that. This was the God of the universe, the creator of all, who surrendered himself. And that is something we need to understand. The focus is on the character of the Redeemer rather than the mechanics of redemption. The how is not the main question, but the why and what. Why does God want to redeem his estranged creation? Because he loves. Love gives until there is nothing more to give. That is the meaning of the cross. Love gives until there is nothing more to give, and that is the meaning of the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. What did he give? He gave the very thing, the very being that was dear to him. That is the meaning of redemption. Let us not focus on sacrifice. Sacrifice does not save. But the one who sacrifices or sacrificed himself saves. It is Christ who saves, not his sacrifice. It is God who saves. Long before Jesus died, redemption was in the plan of God. And that's something we need to understand. I hope that is comforting to you rather than confusing. I would love to spend more time talking about it because I have written so much about it. Uh, I'm talking about 50, 60 pages on this. And uh, I just feel so convinced that our preoccupation with sacrifice, even the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, as we are preparing for Lent and Easter and so on, must not be misplaced. Our focus should be on the character of God. Who is this God who gave us, gave me so much? And that is a point. And remember, no fig leaf, no animal skin can restore our relationship to God. So the sacrifices in the Old Testament were an exposure of sin rather than a cover-up or compensation for sin. When I sacrificed an animal in the Old Testament, it told me that I have sinned and I'm repenting. That's all it is. It does not save me. God is the one who saves. But my sacrifice is a sign of my repentance or acknowledgement of sin. And that's the thing Adam and Eve didn't want to do in the garden. When God said, called out to Adam and said, where are you? He said, I'm naked, therefore I'm hiding. But he never said why he was naked. Well, God bless you. And um, may he continue to challenge us.